We'll begin this evening's talk with a few moments as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama 2,500 years ago. So settling into your seat. under our metaphorical Bodhi tree with Siddhartha. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, And after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly all the poison arrows of greed, of aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha Gautama, the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha, from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to fully awaken, Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by these words. What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here where and how you are. Just who do you think you are anyway? The Bodhisattva, the just about to be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering, an undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gota sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability and an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, all of these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, In response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisattva, in his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to have any 
power over the Buddha or the about-to-be Buddha in that moment. And so we sit, maybe not always quite exactly like the Buddha sat on that night 2,500 years ago, but we sit and we practice with sincerity and with determination. At home alone sometimes, maybe with your sangha, with your practice community, and now here in retreat. As awakening beings, as we practice, the particular qualities of heart and of mind that were so perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as we practice, these same capacities of heart and mind continue to develop, deepen, and to mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually. It's inevitable that this happens as long as we keep practicing. This evening we'll explore the quality or the factor of mind that's really the most fundamental underlying factor of practice. Mindfulness. Whether you're practicing right, well, you're, whether your practice right now is rooted in insight, vipassana practice, or samatha, brahmavihara practice, or concentration, samatha, or anapanasati practice, or maybe some combination of these practices. Mindfulness is the fundamental underlying factor of all of our practices. And as we explore together this evening, allow the words to be a a touch point, or we could say a, a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourself, which is facilitated by what I like to call listening from the heart rather than listening from the head. So, in support of this, it's helpful to really deeply relax in and through the body. So let's take a moment now to drop into the body with a bright and easy attention. and relaxing from head to toe, letting the whole body, heart and mind, deeply relax into a very simple presence.
and with an open heart and mind, simply hearing. So mindfulness. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being like a precious gem and that it's supported by seclusion, impartiality, and renunciation. Really the very conditions we have here on retreat. A pervasive and a deep mindfulness along with a calm, concentrated mind are really the key factors for the mind and heart to ripen into the letting go that's necessary for awakening. I often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all the factors of mind necessary for awakening. In fact, really, the great mother of the whole of our practice. So in a sense, it's really the factor of mind that gives birth to all of the other factors necessary for liberation. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as the chief. So maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. We could say that mindfulness is the chief mother the chief mother of our practice. And when it really begins to be established in us, it's really the, truly the ingredient that offers us our greatest protection. <clears throat> the Pali word for mindfulness is sati. And it's sometimes translated as memory or to remember. So if we break that word down to remember, I mentioned it the other evening, I think, briefly, to remember, to reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. I think for many of us, at least at times, We forget to be mindful because of our strong, habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but rather to remain resting in the inertia of our habits. Once in a Dhamma discussion with friends, someone asked a question, They said, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? So it's really a good question, I think. Especially these days, because mindfulness has become kind of a household word. Very common, this mindfulness movement that is wonderful, but also some of the depth and some of the great potency of the original root of mindfulness has been dissipated to some degree sometimes to a great degree, actually. So I'll repeat the question. What makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness. 
This moment's experience is just this. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind. And then in this case meaning absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness. Being receptive to what is without the forethought of concepts, past experience, or ideas of what we think it is or what it should be or what it could be. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta, or excuse me, Krishnamurti, not Nisargadatta at this point, the great Indian teacher Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. This relationship to experience is sometimes called the don't know mind. With this great intimacy of mindful presence opening us to understanding the way it really is. Which may appear so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in the inertia of our old habits, but to meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to come close, very close, and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of skim or, or float along the surface of things. It really connects going right into the object. And yet, it's not a sticky, fixed sort of connection. Mindful attention is a clear, fluid connection that lights on an object just long enough and just deep enough to know it. Mindfulness is the active aspect of awareness. Mindfulness is a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to present moment's experience. And I'll repeat that. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience and, at its best, purely receptive in relationship to whatever's presenting itself in the present moment. And, of course, we pay attention to a whole range of experience, including things that we usually do quite mechanically. Breathing. Walking bodily sensations, moving the body, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, thinking. We pay attention to phenomena that's pleasant, 
that might be wonderful and pretty easy to pay attention to. And we give attention to experience that's unpleasant, that might be difficult to be with. We open to all of it. No parts left out. The very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. Mindfulness is about living in the action. Living in the action of the body, the heart, and the mind. Living in the present moment's experience. So, in a sense, we forget ourself. We, in a sense, lose our self, so to say, in what is. And so there's just what is without anything added or needing to be added, and without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. With mindful awareness, we have the possibility of not thinking, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. In fact, the moment that we think, I'm doing this, we're creating or we're recreating a sense of a separate self, creating a separation, a disconnection from the reality of the way things the, the way things really are. And we're living in an idea, the idea of I, the idea of me, the idea of mine, <coughs> instead of living in the action. So a a bit of a personal story in relationship to this. Giving birth for me uh, the first time, about 54 years ago, was my first formal teaching and practice in mindfulness and insight, although it certainly wasn't called this. The Lamaze... uh, Birth training was a training of being really fully present, awake and aware in the process of what was happening in and of itself that I was certainly very involved with. And through the training we were told and during the birth told and during the birthing process I certainly soon very quickly discovered this that any resistance to the process that was taking place would make it extremely uncomfortable. Getting myself out of the way, but at the same time being really totally present and engaged and aware in the midst of what was very intense, not easy, but really quite okay. Which allowed it to be very, very interesting and truly filled with wonderment. It was really a very powerful lesson that I've obviously never forgotten. And sometimes mindfulness feels like magic. 
Maybe some of you have had that experience when mindfulness feels like magic. But it's not like the magic, a magician's magic. The magician's magic creates illusion. And it pulls us into the illusion, pulls us into delusion. The magic and the great beauty of mindfulness takes us out of the illusion, takes us out of delusion, directly into reality. As a a child, one of my great fascinations and great interests was magic tricks. And so for quite a number of years, this was what I always asked for, for um, a birthday gift. And I actually became quite adept uh, uh, at doing magic tricks, adept enough in performing magic tricks that um, I was the magician a few times uh, in our yearly neighborhood fair. In retrospect, I've come to understand that what I wanted to see with doing all these magic tricks over and over and over again for quite a few years was how they worked. See how the illusion worked. Without mindfulness we're bound. We're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things. And we get caught again and again in reactivity and attachment to these not clearly seen appearances. The result being that we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. The Venerable Analio puts it this way in his book, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. The element of non-reactive watchful receptivity of sati forms the foundation for Satipatthana as an ingenious middle path which neither suppresses the contents of experience nor compulsively reacts to them. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. Sati thereby leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is. This technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. Practicing in this way, bare awareness of a hindrance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. Important aspects of Sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state 
of mind. No matter who we are, where or how we live, all of us want to live with ease. All of us want contentment, happiness. And it seems that most of us hope, and maybe we even assume, that much of our life experience at any given time is kind of set in place, kind of permanently in place. And of course, from myriad perspectives, we want life to suit our passing fancies, to suit our expectations, our deepest desires. And so I think it's fair to say that most people spend most of their time and energy trying to accomplish this through external experiences, by getting this and that, or him, or her, doing this and that, going here and there. And we go for, we try for sustaining satisfaction and contentment through the constantly changing world of our senses and our thoughts, as well as through the myriad and constantly changing relationships that go on throughout the whole of our lives. And I think as many of you know, at least at times, none of this really works in that depth of sustaining ease, peace. The Buddha talked about happiness that's beyond our ordinary experiences of pleasure, which we all have, comes and goes. So beyond those experiences... He said that happiness arises when we're mindful. Well, how simple. Not so easy, but happiness arises when we're mindful. And so we really take the Buddha's words to heart and look closely in order to sense and to see and to know our experience directly. It's through our meditation practice that we, when we really, truly bring our attention to the present moment. And so we see, we practice and see this over and over again, moment by moment by moment. Once we relinquish the belief that there's a more spiritually perfect moment than the moment that we're in. It's then that we really, truly, and wholly have embraced our life and infused our life with the energy for awakening. Our practice is one of very deep intimacy, the deepest intimacy with our own experience which, as practice develops, expands, and as it matures, 
becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound intimacy with all beings, all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware, intimately aware of it, whatever it is in that moment. To see and know what is, what truly is. How is it in this present moment? And this present moment? And this present moment? This is the basic foundation of all forms of Buddhist practice. How is it in experiencing the I? E-Y-E, I. Ear, nose, tongue, touch. How is it in in experiencing the breath? How is is it in experiencing the mind? How is it really? Not what you hope it is or want it to be or imagine it to be or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to our present moment's experience is what allows clarity and a really true understanding, insight to arise. To just simply and naturally arise which it inevitably does. We don't really do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not very far away at all. It's right here. It's ever-present, immediately close, always and everywhere, right here, right this moment. And again, it's our greatest protection. Some years ago, I was teaching uh, a weekly mindfulness class. And each week, people would come in and we'd discuss and practice the various uh, foundations of mindfulness. And, <clears throat> and then they'd take it home for the week, and I'd ask them to take note of what their experience was. And then when they came back the next week, everybody would share something from their week of practice. Well, one time a woman came in who had been in the class and she said, "Um, that morning she had been watering her garden very mindfully. And she said she'd watered her garden many, many, many times over the years. But that morning it felt like it was the first time she'd ever watered her garden because she was so mindful. And then her mind took a big leap and she said to all of us, how have we survived so long, meaning we the species, our human species, so long without being mindful? And she went on, she said, terrible things are decided and done when mindfulness isn't present. And 
that was really, we all kind of took it in. It was a strong thing to offer for all of us. The Buddha Dhamma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. And one way of looking at this is that without mindfulness, it's as though we're living life through binoculars that are out of focus. So our perspective, our perception is blurry. We experience life through the filters of uh, ideas and preconceptions and opinions and judgments and hopes and fears or maybe similar past experiences. So for instance, an experience that probably each of you have had at times, you meet someone new, someone you've never met, brand new, and you don't see them as they actually are. You see them maybe in relationship to your thoughts about them, how much you think you like them, how much you think you're attracted to them, how much you think you don't like them, how much you think you aren't attracted to them. Or maybe they remind you of somebody else. So you see this new person in relationship to the similar qualities you're thinking about in another person. Or maybe you see this new person in relationship to how you hope they are or what you want from them or hope you can get from them or hope you won't get from them. With all of this, you're not really experiencing this person that you've just met for the very first time just simply as they are. Have you ever gotten to know somebody and found out that they really weren't at all like your imagined ideas about them were? Without mindfulness, we could say that everything is kind of like this. Everything we see and taste and hear and touch and smell and think is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thoughts and habit patterns. Meditation practice is grounded in mindful awareness and it's about bringing everything into a clear, sharp focus to see things as they really, truly are, as though for the first time and without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, with what's often called beginner's mind. Quite a number of years ago, one of my grandsons, when he was two and a half years old, uh, and he and his son, my, my, his father, my son, and his mother were living in Pennsylvania, and I went to visit them. And he, was, he and his mother and I went for a walk down the hill behind their house. And my little grandson, Alex, saw a pine cone on the ground. It was the very first time he'd ever seen a pine cone, never seen one before. 
So he picked it up and he looked at it. He turned it around, looked at it every which way he could possibly look at it. Then he stuck it up to his nose and he smelled it all the way around, end of it and each end and everywhere. Then he stuck out his tongue and he licked it, tasted it all over the place. He was really investigating this thing that he'd never encountered before. Then his mom and I, who were watching all this, very dutifully said, that's a pine cone. (laughs) And Alex, being a good boy, sometimes said, repeated, yes, pine cone, pine cone, he said. But then he went about his business, tasting, smelling, touching, seeing this experience, this phenomena that he was holding. I've never forgotten it. It was a great teaching for me. And this is an attitude of mind that we can learn, or maybe more accurately, relearn and bring back into our life as a whole. And it's transformative. Not that we have to taste and, you know, we do it our own way. But it's transformative. It's transformative and actually very deeply healing. One definition of these teachings and practices is that they're the best medicine. The best medicine to make us well in the deepest and most profound sense. There are four domains of mindfulness, four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. And this evening we'll explore the first of these domains. To some degree we'll explore it, which is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such. Not one's ideas about it or uh, one's interpretations of it, but the body in the body. And of course there are many and varied and specific aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. And of course, as you all know, one of our primary orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. The development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible via mindfulness of breathing is potentially profound in making the very simple sensations of the in and out breath, maybe at the nostrils, or the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly, or the sensorial experience of the breath coming into and moving out through the whole body. I've been deeply grateful and even awed at the depth and the breadth of the purification of the heart and mind that happens with this practice. As well as for what comes to be sensed, seen, and understood with a simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breath. 
So right now, for just a moment, close your eyes and let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the simple sensations of in-breath and out-breath in the nostril area or the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly or whole body breathing. and being present with this with as little self as possible. And now just very simply and non-judgmentally notice are you trying to control or trying to manipulate the breath? Or are you just simply allowing the breath to breathe itself? very important to notice this without judgment, without self-recrimination. Just mindful. In a moment of clear seeing, there's often a sense of relief As a friend of mine says, seeing, clear seeing, is relieving. And at times in our practice, we might particularly notice each breath, each inhalation and exhalation, where we connect with the breath, wherever that is for you. Noticing it maybe right when it begins and then staying with it all the way through to its end. And maybe noticing the ending, the cessation of an exhalation and then the beginning of the next inhalation. Or maybe we just very simply Notice the movement of the in and out breath. Maybe at the nostrils, maybe in the belly, or maybe through the whole body. Just this, which over time helps to cultivate an increasingly quiet, and tranquil, and peaceful breath, and an overall body-mind calm that's very supportive towards developing a more refined mindful attention. 
So the body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures. And not our sort of ordinary, everyday, quite casual way of noticing our bodily activity. But a closer, more intimate, ongoing and careful attention to the body in every position. So standing and sitting and lying down and walking and the various movements of the body and getting up and down and flexing and extending the arms and the legs, turning, lifting and carrying, even bringing mindfulness of the body in the body to the experiences of falling asleep in the evening, waking up in the morning, or maybe before and after a nap during the day. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone, a me, an I behind this walking, behind this standing, this sitting, this movement? Beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be just simply known as standing? Sitting, just simply sitting. Walking, as just simply walking. Without the layer of I am, or the internal feeling of this is me walking, this is me sitting, etc. Once many years ago, one of my Burmese teachers, the Venerable Saida Upandita, <clears throat> asked me in a practice interview, practice meeting, <clears throat> he said, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking or standing or sitting or any bodily sensations? Well, for just a brief moment, I was kind of caught by the question which in retrospect I realized was a kind of test of my practice at the time when he asked me that question. But very quickly, right in that practice meeting with him, there was a spontaneous reflection and then a response to Sayadaw. And I said, no, no, there's no woman, no man, no anybody being known when I'm directly connected with and mindful of walking or whatever bodily phenomena is happening. A good observation and a good question you might ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful awareness of the body and the body, we also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. So for instance, the intention to, followed by action or inaction. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention, where the energy of volition begins, where it starts from and how it feels in our body. 
I don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way stand up or not stand up or sit or lift an arm or take a step or speak particular words. If we think and we feel that our actions come solely from the place of a separated, isolated I or me, we'll eventually or maybe quite quickly experience some degree of suffering. Our actions of body, mind, and speech are always a response or a reaction in relationship to something that occurred in our immediate field of experience, which may also often be clearly or maybe subtly related to some past experience. As mindful awareness of the body and the body blossoms, there's a very natural, non-conceptual, intuitive, growing understanding of the subtler causes of suffering that begins to take hold, which then can open our heart to an unimaginable expanse of compassion in relationship to oneself and in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body? Quite a few years ago now, I had a very um, deeply dedicated and longtime student. Uh, his name was Roy. And he was deeply dedicated, a deeply dedicated practitioner, right up into until his dying moment. He died of AIDS-related complications. And sitting with him in the hospital one afternoon here in Taos, as he was lying in his bed, and at that point there wasn't much left of his body, he stretched his arm up, very slowly, mindfully looking at it. And slowly, once it got straight up from when he was lying lying down flat, straight up in the air, and he started turning it one way, turning it the other way, looking at it really carefully with great interest. For a while, and I just sat there with him, noticing what he was doing. And then he said, in a very cool and yet odd way. Wow. Just that. The form, the posture, and the movements of the body are totally dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions just as, for instance, does the arising of anger or the sensations of coolness on the skin 
or the liking or the disliking of any particular experience or Roy's body being as thin and as light as a reed. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment by moment. Choices are made, but in truth, they too are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered and intimate attention to the body in itself? Its movements and the process of the of intention that we really begin to directly experience this truth. The next domain of mindfulness that the body, that the Buddha, mindfulness of the body that the Buddha directs us towards is giving attention to the parts of the body. All 32 parts as it's classically taught in the Buddhist texts. Hair, skin, muscles, bones, all the various internal organs and all the fluids. In your practice here in retreat, you certainly most likely uh, notice them as they make themselves known, such as the intestine, or the bladder, or the heart, or the lungs, or maybe the liver, mucus, saliva, etc., etc. The classical 32 parts of the body practice Uh, is not one that's uh, very often taught here in the West. Though, I can say from my own experience that it can be quite a powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's ideas and identification with this body as being a solid entity and in being mine, being me. And I have no doubt that you have noticed many parts of your body even during these first few days of this retreat. But how often have you noticed them in a mindful way? How identified, for instance, are you with the hair on your head? The color of it? Or the lack of it or the hair on your body how do you attend to the experiences of your intestine and the digestive process going on in there or to a moment or many moments of the experience of the heart how do you experience your skin this bag of flesh that holds all the various contents of the body? How often do you experience your nails and teeth and saliva and sweat and mucus or any part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities 
of mindful awareness. A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. (coughs) Just the body in the body. Without the layers of ideas and interpretations and concerns about it. Just the body as a body. This can be a very powerful aspect of practice in beginning to dissolve one's conceptual ideas of solidity and identification with one's own body and in relationship to other bodies. And some words from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a meditator, how a yogi, abides contemplating the body as a body. So, just for a moment now, consider, how do you identify yourself? For most of us, if not all of us, a primary and large part of our personal identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa. Rupa being the Pali word that translates as material form or materiality. So considering this for a moment in relationship to yourself. I'm a woman. I'm a man. I'm gender fluid. I'm transgender. I'm thin or fat, or not too thin and not too fat. I'm tall or short or of average height. I'm good looking, beautiful, ugly, plain, attractive, unattractive. I'm dark-skinned, I'm light-skinned. I have good skin. I have bad skin. My nose is large. My nose is too big. I have a small nose. I have a really cute nose. I'm wrinkled and old and weak. I'm young and strong and smooth-skinned. And on and on and on it goes. With all of these personal identities constantly changing over the years, or just within a few days, or within just moments in our mind, even though we engage tremendous effort, energy, and time in clinging to these various identities. There's really no place to hang our identity hat for more than just a few moments, if that. No place to really rest in these constantly changing relative perceptions and ideas of who we think we are. So just a personal example. In the last few years, 
I've shrunk more than two inches. And I used to identify myself, you know, not particularly greatly, but identified myself as an average height of a woman, a girl, a young woman, and then an older woman, average height. And now I'm a short person, and I'm getting shorter day by day. I'm still amazed when I go to the doctor and they take my, measure me, and I'm shorter again. (laughs) My feet are getting bigger. My body's getting smaller. I'll be a duck pretty soon. (laughs) Mm So another uh, important and potentially profound insight, insightful aspect of mindfulness that can be established in our body is related to the fact that our bodies, in essence, in its in their in its essence, is no different from any other form, no different from any other rupa. Our form is the same is made up of the same elements as any and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. So potentially, a non-ordinary way to cut through the concept of this body as a solid and static entity, and to cut through the I am identification. The Buddha offered quite a profound teaching and a very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching. And if we sincerely uh, and seriously take it up, it can be quite a window in opening us in opening us to the direct experience and discernment and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality, the ultimate reality of form, the ultimate reality of rupa, one aspect of the reality of how it really is. How and what this body, as well as every other form, really is. The teaching and practice is about directly discerning the four great essentials, or the four great elements. Earth, water, fire, air, and wind. Through directly experiencing the specific characteristics of each of these elements in the body in relationship to sensations. Sensations that, in fact, we experience all of the time when we're sitting and standing and lying down and when the body is moving. So this evening, I'd just like to mention these sensations, each of which directly corresponds to the to uh, the specific or particular characteristic of each of the four great elements. And as I mention them, I'm sure that you all, each, will recognize many of these sensations from your own experience of being in a body. The sensorial characteristics of the earth element, hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness the sensorial characteristics of the water element, flowing, 
cohesion. The sensorial characteristics of the fire element, heat, warmth, cold, and coolness. The sensorial characteristics of the air or the wind element, supporting, pushing. All and each of these bodily sensations are really readily available for us to experience and to be mindful of in any moment. And we'll take a closer look at these elemental sensorial experiences through a guided meditation uh, coming up fairly soon um, in one, one upcoming evening. How intimately, how mindfully connected are you to these most basic and universal experiences? This body and its elemental nature, essentially no different than any other form. The last instruction from the Buddha in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. So maybe seemingly not something we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting. But the truth of the matter is, there are many, many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. Maybe insects. There was a corpse of an insect in my room the other day. Maybe birds or other creatures. And certainly the corpses of plants and trees and maybe even some old leftover corpses of flowers from last year. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas are mortal. They have the nature to die and to decompose or just to deconstruct and decompose. Consequently, it's possible to observe this directly. I've been in retreat in various places over the years and at times quite purposely uh, observed the dying processes of flowers and grasses and continued over time to observe them go through all of the changes that things do as and after they die. And once, when I was in a retreat with a few friends on Cape Cod in Massachusetts where we rented a house on the shore of the ocean for a couple of months to practice together, I had the great good fortune, which actually is maybe good fortune only in the world of Dhamma practice, or for Dhamma practitioners, to come upon a dead seal on the beach. And every day for a whole month, I walked down to that body, and I sat with it for a while, observing and letting in the process of decomposition and decay, which in this particular instance was happening quite quickly, because it was being helped along by the many seagulls 
who found this seal's decaying flesh to be delicious food. This daily practice during that month-long retreat was really a heart-mind-changing experience for me on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho, who until some years ago now was the abbot of the Amaravati Monastery in England and who is the most senior Western monk in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah. He tells about a time when he was living in the monastery in Thailand and he asked that he be able to spend a part of a day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk, the authorities let him go in, though he said they were quite reluctant, but they they weren't able to tell him no. And he said that all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged. Actually, he said, fully assaulted. He said that the first thing that hit him when he went in was the smell. He said it drove him, almost drove him to run out the door. But he didn't. He just stayed mindfully present. And little by little, it became tolerable. Just a smell. Just a scent. And he spoke about his long-standing and deeply embedded assumptions regarding this package of human form being completely undone in his mind and heart as he took in the various stages of decay all around him. And he mentioned that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and he saw what he called all sorts of parts, which he said he found quite puzzling at first. And then he quickly realized that the very bloated body in front of him could explode at any minute, which he said he dearly hoped would not happen while he was there. And it didn't. He was grateful for that. He said that when he went back out onto the street, he said he saw people in a radically new way and with a radically wide open heart. This isn't about being morbid or, or strange in some way. All forms, all rupas, living and non-living, are mortal. And we're so attached to forms, probably first and foremost our own form, and also all sorts of other forms. And for many of us, our attachment can be so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire for and attachment to, so for instance, forms that please us. Or forms that are we're close to and that we care about. Or forms that are beautiful to us. Or forms that maybe are amusing and interesting to us or maybe simply the taken-for-granted familiar forms. 
I think that what is actually strange and amazing is that fairly often we think and act as if we and they won't change and won't die. Which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting really closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or not so subtle tension and stress in our heart and mind and body. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? Mindfulness practice trains us to drop into the body again and again and again. And what we find when we connect and look carefully in the body are sensations. Much of the drama, we could say, of our thoughts and our feelings and our actions begin with sensations. Through mindfulness we train ourselves to be in the body to receive them. To be present with the sensations of our body is not an act of will. It's actually an act of unconditional acceptance, which is one aspect of metta. An act of unconditional acceptance with grace, and at least some degree of equanimity. This acceptance implies not fighting and not resisting what's presenting itself, not wanting things to be different, and not concealing or hiding from the moment's experience in the body. And in such moments, we feel and intuitively know our activity as belonging to life. Some very simple and ordinary examples that relate to our life here in retreat and of course also outside of a formal retreat setting. We might wash our dishes as an act of generosity and love. In a sense, as a holy act. We open the door clearly sensing and knowing what the wrist is doing, for instance. Maybe we feel our body contract, turning away from cold, or in a few months contract in relationship to very hot weather. And we mindfully catch ourselves and consciously with mindfulness rise up to meet it. The choice to be mindfully aware is often an act of some degree of courage. In relationship to what some of you, maybe the movement practices that some of you are doing 
during this retreat. Maybe some stretching or some yoga or qigong or tai chi. And of course with walking practice. And of course also with your everyday ordinary movements. Movement invites attention. It asks us to practice a kind of, we could say, devotion to ourselves. Not in a self-centered way, but as an act of respect and an act of loyalty instead of abandoning ourselves. We can learn to inhabit this body in a wholesome and a wise way. Someone once said, and I'm not sure, but it may have been the famous dancer and choreographer Martha Graham, said, the body is tremendously homesick for us, and it waits patiently for our return. And though we maybe have ignored its invitations for many years, When we do say yes, it's immediately available. And it's full of life and know-how. And all of a sudden, we find that we really need no training, so to say, to be fully alive. That we only lack the determination to feel our aliveness. The body's an excellent meditation subject. It'll always tell the truth. So for instance, if you break a leg, or if we're physically ill in some way, the body's not going to give off a pleasant feeling. And also, it doesn't have the capability of kind of getting lost in the past or projecting into the future. It's the mind that does that, not the body. And it's the meditation subject that most easily bridges the gap between formal and informal aspects of our meditation practice. Also, a simple mindful presence in the body can often, and this is an important one, can often be a safe haven when thoughts or emotions are raging and maybe feeling too overpowering, overwhelming to be with. And as I think we all experience, at least to some degree these days, we're living in a time when the very rapid development of technology and the pace of our culture are making it more and more difficult to stay connected to our bodies. Consequently, cultivating the intention to practice with this first domain of mindfulness becomes more and more important. Mindfulness is kind of like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of our practice, we each find the way. Because each of us has experienced specific conditioning along the way of our lives, many aspects of the path and its fruits uniquely emerge for each of us in relationship to this conditioning. 
the treasures, the fruits that we discover along the way are healing, beautiful, and the simple universal truths of the way of things. And this is what sets us free. And some words from the Buddha. There's one thing when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It's mindfulness centered in the body, said the Buddha. So in closing the talk this evening, I'd like to offer you a really wonderful and inspiring instruction from the Buddha that you can offer yourselves anytime. This is called A Single Excellent Night. It's from the Majjhima Nikaya. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come, who knows. No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is in her, it is in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. (coughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.